let's talk about the future. You're listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine and the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. In this series, Mary Fayton interviews industry experts in three fascinating conversations about what our cultural landscape might look like in 10 years' time. We're exploring the future relationship between the arts in three important areas, the environment, health and wellbeing, and tourism. We acknowledge the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. How are arts and culture in Western Australia impacted by environmental change and what is the sector's role in addressing these issues now and in coming decades? These are the anchor points for the first in the Chamber of Arts and Culture WA's podcast series, Orienting Towards Our Future. I'm Mary Fayton. It's my pleasure to introduce three expert panellists to this conversation. WA Scientist of the Year in 2018, Peter Newman AO, is Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University, where he established CUSP, the Curtin Sustainability Policy Institute. As well as being a renowned authority on sustainability in WA and an advisor at a federal level, Peter's international work includes being coordinating lead author on a number of reports with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Having begun his career as a foundation lecturer in environmental sciences at Murdoch University in 1974, Peter has a broad perspective on the overarching story of environmentalism in WA. His daughter is Dr Renee Newman, who also joins the panel today. Renee is a lecturer and researcher at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, WAPA, and an acclaimed actor, director and producer. Her work contains a rich thread of commentary on excess, sustainability and waste, and she's recently collaborated with Peter to devise and deliver a unit called Leadership in Sustainability for the Masters in Climate Emergency at Curtin. Renee is a member of the Blue Room Theatre's Sustainability Committee. And Aron Katz is an artist, researcher, designer and curator. Alongside Yonat Zur, Aron is co-founder and artistic director of Symbiotica and the Tissue Culture and Art Project. His work over decades uses the practices of biological science to critique the cultural and ethical issues of life manipulation. It's been over 20 years since Oron and Yonat realised the semi-living steak, their victimless meat using tissue culture. What Oron described in 2014 as a fantastic way of introducing novelty foods to the rich has become big business. Welcome all three of you and thank you. Thank you. Now, I want to ask, first of all, about art presenting ways of thinking. And Renee and Aron, I want to come to you first to ask you about your drive to use your art to comment on the declining environment and the solutions the world is coming up with. Renee. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think there is a lot to be said for this concept of eco-dramaturgy that has come through in performance in the last decade or so, which really marries the idea that form and content of performance and theatre needs to meet the modes of production. So how we make something along with who is making it, why we're making it, what is being said and all of that. Um, So there's a lot in that space and there are a lot of people making work in that space. I am trying to do things. I'm not sure how successful I am at at achieving these outcomes, but there was one work in 2018, an audio performance work that I made 
um, called Seeking Basic Needs and Other Tales of Excess, which was really commenting on late-stage, um, advanced stages of capitalism, our excess, and how we might be able to actually slow down quite physically within a performance, having the participants listen to a soundscape as they walked through an urban environment and actually physically asking them to really slow down and taking the world around them while listening to stories of people who had their different relationships to movement, not just uh, geographical movement across across uh, borders um, to really comment on migration and um, and forced migration in particular, um, but also to understand how we're always moving and to embrace that as a basic need and that perhaps if we did that, we would change our consumerist habits as well as be a little kinder. So that comes from uh, a personal ethic as well as being able to understand that eco-dramaturgy and other forms um, like this eco artists, I think more broadly, really deserve to be understood from a place of intersectionality. So understanding that ecological crisis, climate crisis can't be removed from racial and gender oppression and being able to understand accessibility, wage inequality, all of these things that are actually bound intricately and being able to kind of I pull them apart in both the content of a work, what a work is saying, but then also how we're doing it and who we're asking to be part of that process. Mm. So there's a lot of movement in that space and a lot of movement in um, justice-related concerns. So how we move forward, um, I was reading Ben Okri, the writer, the, there's a Guardian piece um, about his call for an existential creativity and about being able to say that this is not from a place of negativity necessarily, but to be able to, to harness truth and say, we are at the end of our times. How do we actually embrace moving forward? And with that is enlisting all artists to be great dreamers. We have to dream the world we need, basically. But there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, a very moving perspective mm. at the same time. Thank you, Renee. Aron, can I ask you the same question about what the, what the drive has been behind wanting to comment on the solutions that, that, that are before us at the moment? I should go back to the beginning, in a sense. Uh, when I was a design student at Curtin, I got really interested in eco-design. And I decided to look at the link between design and biology, thinking that if we are going to use living biological systems... Um, it will become somewhat more compatible with uh, the environment and therefore we'll be able to solve a lot of the current issues of uh, manufacturing. So moving from manufacturing to growing is an extremely seductive and uh, at the time very promising idea that uh, I realized very shortly afterwards that that was also a very naive notion that uh, treating life as a way of making things for humans, uh, fulfilling our wants and desires, by basically trying to subject life to our will uh, might not be the right way of doing so. Uh, so I, I, I flipped quite early in my career from being a solutionist, trying to find ways in which we can uh, use our new knowledge of life uh, in order to solve problems to look at how problematic those solutions might be. So I really became a problem seeker rather than a, a problem solver. And I also, at the very same time, flipped from being a designer to an artist because I feel that art is really, really good at pointing the finger and creating awareness, but it's not that good in being a solutionist. I think there's other professions that are doing uh, much better, and there's a need to create this 
critical discourse about where we might go and what we might do and understanding that when you do it as an artist, your agendas are very, very different. You celebrate actually the power of art is in its uselessness. So it means that by that you distill the issues and you can't hide behind utility. And when it comes to dealing with life and by extension with uh, environmental issues, I think it's an important way of doing so. So I, I would actually shy away from the idea of artists as uh, coming up with solutions. I would also shy away from this idea of dreaming. And, and that's something that uh, I recently found out that apparently the ancient, the ancient Greeks um, found the idea of hope extremely problematic because it was an obstacle for realistic foresight. So it's really funny coming from an artist, but actually I, I'm a staunch believer in realistic foresight rather than dreaming and imagining better futures. I think that we also, as a profession that uh, mostly need to shine mirrors back, I think the mirror we have to shine is not a rosy one now, but it's actually showing how problematic things are and how problematic the mindsets that drive our solutionist approach uh, to the issues that were generated by the very same mindset might not be the right way to go. Thank you. Uh, Peter, can I come to you on that? And I'm interested in in perhaps a segue on realistic foresight because (laughs) as a scientist, I I mean, you do take quite an optimistic perspective on things. Talk to me about that and then I'd like to hear your your reflections on the importance of using art to talk about your science. Uh, I would begin by saying I'm proudly a solutionist (laughs) 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 and uh, a hope merchant Um, and I believe strongly in dreaming and visions to enable that but I also recognise there are always issues associated with any solution and early on uh, when I began the environmental science profession at uh, Murdoch um, that was clear that we needed to create a new profession. The solutions that were being presented up until then were were very uh, simplistic and not working. So we, uh, over the next 20 years, I was involved in how that science-oriented, well, environmental science profession began to make a case for itself. So in that 20 years, we were just trying to say, Take us seriously. You know, we're, we're a new profession. We can actually solve many of these problems for you. And that's continued and it is still growing. But fairly quickly, we realised it's not just science and technology. It's much deeper. It's a political, economic, social, cultural issue. And so the sustainability movement from the 90s on has tried to make those links between environmental issues and the deeper values and processes of our society and economy. And I've been very involved in that, in the politics of that, in the, in the whole implementation of it. And, I, and, and through the IPCC, I'd say uh, globally, it's been an issue to try and say, well, I think we can see a better future now. We can see our way through this but it's going to be very much a question of bringing everyone and dramatising it. So in that period, we began this Leadership in Sustainability course, which showed how creative thinking could begin to help in bringing together a whole range of people who didn't see themselves as artists, but who could find ways of 
bringing about solutions because they began to think differently like artists do naturally like Oren <laughs> he's he's become the, the the artist who is enabling us to think differently and Renee and I began this actually 20 years ago at Murdoch and then uh, continued at Curtin and that process has been making people understand that the problems we face, the wicked problems we face, uh, can be looked at differently and perhaps we will find a range of solutions that uh, will provide us with hope. Uh, and I continue to suggest that that is happening. Mm. Thank you. Um, I want to come back to asking you more about that course later on in the conversation, but uh, I in imagining new futures, I think one of the one of the issues is around how you tell these stories so that they actually cut through because there's a bombardment of bad news, um, and if you then find your bad news on the stage when you're going for entertainment, that or or you know in your ears when you're listening or whatever, uh, however you're taking in creativity, that it's. Um, it can be too much and, it, and it's not really accessing where you want it to touch people. Aron, you've used satire. Tell me a little bit more about your reflections on, on the continuing usefulness of satire. Thank you. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one because, and, and I'm still debating myself, I suppose, if that's an effective strategy or not. Uh, people who get it, it works for them. But the amount of people who take our work on face value and not digging deeper and actually seeing the irony in the satire in our work is alarming. <laughs> um, and I think this is the problem of the increasing lack of the, I suppose, educational systems that's not teaching any more critical thinking as much as they used to before, and, and, and people tend not to be able to, to dig down. And, and when it comes to the type of work we're doing, it's often being categorized as good news stories. So when we grew the first piece of meat, even though it was a critique and the question that uh, we were asking wasn't about how we can feed the world, but how, what kind of relationships we might have with the world if we'll start to eat meat that came from no bodies. Yeah? So how our relationship to the idea of other living beings would shift and change when we would start to utilize. Um, and, and actually now I'm, I'm revisiting it because those companies that are now trying to produce meat in the lab, and you know, for me, it was initially a satire. They're talking seriously about the great idea of removing sentiency from living biological beings in order to solve problems. Yeah. So any society that thinks that um, removing sentiency from a living being is a good idea, I think it's a sick society. Mm. Um, however, it's when we would present it as a satire, now it's being taken as if it's a good idea. And, and I think many artists who see themselves as uh, producers of cautionary tales are amazed by the amount of times that those cautionary tales are becoming more of an instruction manual to the exact people that are trying to question their, um, their motivations. Um, so, I don't know, just recently we had a work at uh, PS Art Space in Fremantle, which was a bit of a satire on food systems and how strangely we're trying to remove nature in the name of sustainability when, uh, from the production of our foods. And what's interesting there is, again, it's this mindset that somehow by removing ourselves from nature, we would save nature, while actually what we're doing is just hiding nature and, and the consequences of our actions over nature. Um, so we were trying to push it as hard as we can. And then a month later, I went to this uh, conference in Munich where there were companies, it's like one of those three and a half thousand euros for two days conference that you have to apply and I got invited. 
Um, and there were people standing up there and, and using even more ridiculous lines that we used in our satire extremely seriously in order to raise funding from venture capitalists with those, what for me was just out there ridiculous statements, but for them it was part of this ongoing exercise of developing those seductive narratives of uh, solutionism and salvation through technology that is becoming increasingly detached from reality, in my opinion. So um, so it is, I still believe that satire is, and, and humor is a really good way to draw people in. You talked about kind of the idea of bad news. So you, you draw people in by uh, making something which on its face looks a bit funny and ridiculous, but then hopefully by that you draw, you, you get them to look deeper and you challenge the ideas about the world around them, which I think this is the only thing art can do. Mm. Are you troubled by the by the reception <laughs> recently in Munich? Then, I mean, did you did you come away feeling that you were able to convey, guys? I was only joking. So in the Munich one, actually, I, I was there just as a guest. But uh, in twenty eighteen, I was in a conference in New York, which was uh, the biggest conference of this whole field of cellular agriculture and biofabrication. The idea of growing animal products mainly, but basically growing products rather than manufacturing them, which is very similar to my initial ideas back in the nineties. And they, were, they had a timeline of this field, starting with the work that we actually presented for the very first time here in Perth in 2004, A Victimless Leather. And they used that as the trigger for this whole new industry that actually that very piece was supposed to critique. And, and I must admit that I had this existential crisis, which I'm still suffering from, whether I just spent the last 20 years feeding the very same mindsets and, and uh, ways of doing things that I was actually questioning and, and, and I set up together with Jonat our work to be there to question and challenge rather than for that to be embraced uh, with no critique. Yeah, yeah. So. Renee, you mentioned already your 2018 work, Seeking Basic Needs and Other Tales of Excess, and, and it's something that you still use with students. Uh, and I'd love to hear you talk about why and, and what your observations are of the way that they are responding to that work. Yeah. Um, okay. So with that work, I should say that there are things about the work that I'm deeply unsatisfied by, um, that uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, I think that it's good to be kind of have that sort of unrest around how something is successful or not. The reason being is that I come from a deeply privileged place, and I am talking about um, things that are not necessarily of my immediate experience, including um, the plight of refugees. But um, I think what's important about it is both from a form and content perspective, which is why I continue to use it for students, is to get them to understand how um, how you make a work and what you want to say about a work can be done through various ways. It can be through how you use an audience. It can be through how, like, for example, an audio experience rather than a piece of theatre that might necessarily be overly didactic. Um, so it's how what you get your audience to do to participate in a moment. And in that act, for me, it was successful if people really struggled with the act of actually slowing down and that that, that meant that they were shifting around or thinking about what they do in their everyday daily practice of taking in the world around them. And if we were to do that more often, then perhaps we would consider other things in our lives, including consumer habits and so on. But getting students or getting any participant to walk through an urban environment, particularly one that's perhaps um, filled with shops, um, objects, things of consumer habits and so on, they get to actually marry, you know, 
bring together the story that they're hearing along with what they're actually observing and try and piece that together rather than me um, overtly stating it. So I think that's one of the things that's often very difficult in this type of issue-based work is um, the degree to which um, information statistics crisis can actually be put forward without shutting an, uh, an audience down um, unless, of course, that's the point. Hmm. And uh, and sometimes that point can be done in really creative, innovative ways. And I think that um, what Oran is talking about in terms of satire and that relationship of critical discourse is really, really important um, to avoid those moments as well, especially when someone might take up the work as a prototype for something you really don't want to happen or it might actually just be missed or overwhelmed as we enter that stage of fatigue um, around crisis, right? Every day there's another crisis um, and that can be an exhausting thing. I suppose that there's different ways you can do it though. Some some uh, people will be working in the modes of production, so how a work is put on, the materials that they're using, reusing, recycling or however it might be, the people that they work with. But um, even in main stage, and I'm talking particularly about theatre, main stage environments, Katie Mitchell from the UK who's prolific theatre director, moves between UK and Berlin and all over the world. Um, she did a work called Lungs, which was a two-hander, um, a heteronormative couple um, faced with, you know, should we have a child? Um, and the whole work was powered, sound and lights were powered by them on stationary bikes in the theatre and fueling the entire work. Um, I think that's that's interesting. Yeah. Can I ask you, while we're on the topic of students, um, what your observations are about the intent of young artists to elevate the climate and environment discussion? Well, uh, it's their immediate present and future. Um, I think that there is a, a great deal of frustration and sadness. Um, sometimes that leads to a sense of um, uh, what's the point? And other, and I've never also um, been part of a generation who are more activist-minded. Um, so they are interested. They're interested in. Um, they're asking, actually, why can't I make a piece of didactic theatre? Um, you know, what's what's the problem with that? Uh, there's a lot to say. And I think it's really exciting. Um, I think that they will not only be the next generation of artists, they'll be the people that will be in charge of our institutions and they'll take them down just as much as they'll rebuild them and they will um, be in government. So I, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's really good. Peter, can I ask you, from the perspective of a scientist, does this kind of collaboration and uh, between science and the arts and also the observations uh, of artists on, on environmental science seem obvious to you or is this something that's uh, sort of blown your mind a bit that artists want to comment on your on the work that you have as a career? Oh, I think it's become part of my life now uh, because of my children as much as anything. And uh, I'd like to quickly tell a story about our son, Sam, Renee's brother, who is an artist, lives in the Kimberley. And the story helps us understand how we need to go beyond satire and irony in the arts to help us in the environmental side of things. He produced recently a, uh, a big exhibition in the Peace House in Fremantle of a massive map of Western Australia made with canvas and showing all the ranges and rivers and so on. And it was about the canal that 
Colin Barnett had suggested should be built all the way from the Kimberley through the middle of all the landscapes of Western Australia down to Perth to provide us with water, which was a kind of myth in, in you know, every taxi diver in Perth believed in. And that process was extraordinary because it was rejected at an election, but uh, nevertheless it stays in our minds as a solution to our problem as we're drying out here. We're, we're a climate change problem here. And uh, he, he showed this extraordinary canal bisecting the state and and then he was presented as the Council on Navigation. Uh, and people, some people didn't see that it was a satire. They thought he was actually proposing this. And uh, so it was quite dramatic at the launch of it by con <laughs> that this uh, extraordinary canal was actually a stupid idea and uh, so it it did achieve that but I began to think that I was very involved in what you did after that and we came up with a solution which was wind power desalination and we've now implemented that in Perth and we're no longer have a major crisis with water, uh, it's still something to be fully aware of, but it was basically solved by a process engaging the community in this and, and, and working through what the other options were and how silly they were. So solutions can be found, but the satire and irony is a really good way to dramatise the issues, and I can see that and understand that, but I constantly say, let's get beyond that. Otherwise, we'll all end up just with an existential crisis. It's not good enough to get applause at the end of that. We've got to actually get on and solve it. Mm. I, I've been wondering, listening to you talk about that, whether part of the problem is the fact that the complexity of the environmental and climate crisis means that when people see it represented in work, they're not sure whether it's meant to be funny or like because they don't have enough information as a foundation to observing the work in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And uh, that lack of information uh, is is part of the role of the environmental science movement to, to constantly provide that. So we, we do understand what the issues are and what are solvable and what are just mere media beat-ups. And I've was involved in the State of the Environment report, which has recently come out. And I was very disappointed in that report because it just was a relentless list of the problems. It did not show that in the past 30 years since this process began, extraordinary heroism has occurred solving many of the problems out there. And it doesn't bode well for for the potential to change our world if you constantly show we're, we're failing. The reality is we are achieving some successes and we've got to learn from that, not just learn from the fact that the world is deteriorating. Uh, the reality is there were some amazing stories they could have told and amazing data that they could have emphasised. But in many ways, the problem of Attenborough and Gore and Cohen dramatising the problems is that we think that's what the role of art is in in the environment, just to make us feel bad and get on with finding something or just feeling bad. I don't know. But we've got to dramatise the success stories and we're starting to see that. 
the regenerative film that came out recently. That's a terrific thing. And, and that kind of thing, I, I think regenerative, where we're repairing our environment now, not just stopping it getting worse, repairing it, that, that's extraordinary. And uh, that needs dramatising. I want to ask you, speaking of learning, um, Renee and Peter, to talk a little bit more about this leadership and sustainability course and about why the first assignment is a creative one. Um, Okay, well, uh, a lot of the students, as Peter was saying, a lot of the students um, that are coming in come from science backgrounds, they come from health sciences or they they come from um, potentially economic backgrounds or resource industry. They uh, are not traditionally coming from places where they have had training in the arts. And this creativity um, exercise assignment is not to um, teach them in any way about aesthetics or about anything in relationship to good or bad art, um, whatever that might mean, Um, but in fact to get them to think differently because that's the fundamental principle really about the unit is that in order to to be a leader, you have to start to think laterally, you have to think creatively, you have to think differently. And what we discovered through the years is that this takes a lot of courage, that it takes embracing complexity, and I think that... um, uh, perhaps we might have time to go back to Sam, my brother's project, which was deeply complex piece. But in terms of this unit, this idea of collective wisdom, of conversations, we have conversations with um, sustainability leaders or creative change agents, um, and uh, we have conversations rather than lectures because in this moment, It's less about a lecture and more about a story. If you invite people into your story about how you did something and how you are currently and on that journey of doing things differently, then you take people through in that process and they also understand that theirs is a journey. And it can be quite a scary one as well. Um, For quite a few of the students, they're undertaking um, a massive life change in their profession, in their value systems perhaps. And um, with that, when we ask them to actually open their soul and tell us a part of a, a story in some way through an artistic um, creative medium, then um, it can be quite a vulnerable thing. So we say to them, to think differently, we would like you to act creatively and that can be in any way. We have had people making, doing dumpster dives and turning them into cakes and we eat them. Um, then we have a lot of gardens, you know, people wanting to understand food. We've had people uh, build a brick wall so they can employ an artist to make a mural and then take us through that process. There's all sorts of different things that have happened in the past and all of it is about enacting some type of change. Aron, with the intensification of the climate emergency, um, do you have a sense, I, I realise that you've you sort of struggled with the satirical perspective and what it's wrought, uh, but at the same time, the increased relevance of what you're trying to do based on the fact that people uh, seem to be looking a lot for answers that prevent them from sacrificing their lifestyle. Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And also, I admire your optimism, Peter, and it's like, <laughs> I wish I could share some of it. Uh, but I, I think one of the really interesting things from my perspective is my interest is not so much technology or science, even though I've been working with living biological systems and science for many, many years. It's about the mindsets. And I think one of the issues is that you talked about regeneration. Regeneration now is also being hijacked by the Silicon Valley mindset as well 
where you have startup companies who are using the rhetoric of permaculture and regeneration to promote things like genetically engineered crops and robots and drones and any other form of technology, which in many cases it's a surplus to what actually needs to be done. And I think meat is one of the best examples. It's like there's all of those, you, you can celebrate like the, the amazing solution of, of being able to grow meat in the lab, or you can just say we a minor behavioral change would solve the problem much, much better. Mm. And, and this is where the mindset is. So my concern is that all of those good news stories are really about maintaining the lifestyle that we have now. And, and that's another thing that came up in this Munich conference where one of those companies were trying technology like left, right and center in a ridiculous way. And they're saying our main aim is to convince our consumers that they don't need to change their lifestyle or their behavior. And I think what we need mm -hmm. to do is actually convince people that it is time to rethink the way we do things. Mm -hmm. It is way more than the technology itself and the science itself, I think. It's really about policy. And, and what I actually found interesting, and that's where it's a little bit encouraging, is that I can see how the work that we're producing at Symbiotica and work of uh, my colleagues is now being used also within the context of policy. So I've just been to the GRC, which is the Joint Research Council of, or Center of the European Commission, where they now started a new program of artists and or art and science to engage with policymakers, not in order to generate those, um, not even artworks, it's basically how you, how you get artists into the whole, uh, and the way artists think in, into the whole policymaking uh, arena. And, and I think that's, that's a positive thing, and I think there might be some interesting things, because it will be more towards this idea of how we change the way we think rather than how we, um, how we solve problems yeah. by, by trying more technologies or or more knowledge that might not be the right knowledge that, uh, to be employed in those situations. Well, while we're talking about that, about mindset particularly, I'm curious to hear from all of you about how much you think the, a failure of communication is behind why we're so set back in terms of action around climate and environmental disaster. Ah, I think because that's the agenda at the moment of the people who are determining what we consume, both kind of to do with information as well as uh, mm. within goods and services, yeah. So th there's a those people are, and again, I can see it time and time again. All of those, one of the talks, for example, in Munich, and I just come back to this conference because it was an amazing kind of distilling the issues, and, and because it's a commercial conference rather than a scientific one, uh, where they were talking about the great idea of creating what they refer to as AI-driven enterprises, which is basically companies that are governed by AI. And they thought it's a great idea. And what you can see is that those people are desperately trying to find ways to maintain their power, their hold on power, and they would do anything in order to do so, including blaming a computer that, uh, I, and, you know, inequality or profit-driven. If, if you put it in an algorithm of an AI that becomes the boss, suddenly you have no responsibility over it, and this is like almost like a godlike power that determines how those companies are working in order for this layer of society to maintain their, uh, their control over uh, resources. Um, so I think what we really need to do is, is, is deal with those issues and less with the idea that somehow more technology with the current mindset and with the current way of uh, doing things would, would solve the problems. Renee, can I ask you the same question about, uh, about, about mindset and about this failure of communication? Do you see it that way, that we could be in a different position had we communicated more effectively? Yeah, okay. I think that the, the institutions um, in power are to blame for a great deal of that. Um, I don't actually think that there has been a, the modes of communication have been, um, okay, so when we're talking about large 
broadcast organisations, yes. But when we're talking about artists on the ground making work, I mean, people have been talking for the last 50 to 60 years, arguably a lot longer, and communicating quite clearly about this, and particularly about behavioural change. I think that it's governments that have not been doing what we've been asking them to do. Um, We've seen a change in government here in order to address that and try and deal with at least the last decade of wasted time. That's my opinion. (laughs) Um, It's shared by quite a few. Um, I think that that's incredibly important to actually understand that, well, the modes of communication and how things are being communicated, statistics, data or otherwise, the story, it has been communicated for a long time. It's just now whether or not it's being listened to and that we need that behavioural change and our consumerist behaviour in particular to shift globally, but understand that um, also within that, it's a very complex thing that what is being asked of, say, Australia is not necessarily asked the same question of a small Pacific nation and and elsewhere where um, the, the, the issues are quite different or um, the consumer patterns are very different. So what am I trying to say? I think that it's the stories have been told for a very long time. It's just now we actually have to make the the institutions and people in power listen. Peter, I, I mean, you're a renowned science communicator, particularly in Western Australia. But I wonder about you know if there's a level of bafflement in your mind about how you can keep communicating this stuff and it sometimes still doesn't land. Well, I think it does land, and that's the. Uh, thing that keeps me going. The reality is if you just do your science and write your papers and forget about the communication, you could get very much uh, remain in the existential crisis. But what I've seen in my work is that if you do communicate it and if you take it through to the political process, you can win. You can actually implement it. And and that just keeps me going. So all the train issues and so on that we've... I mean, we, we now have a, a very different city because of the kind of work that I've done on transport. But the uh, uh, story that I'd like to tell is about um, this whole idea of consumption and the importance of reducing our consumption as the major solution to many of these things. Uh, that's certainly been on the agenda right through this period that I've been working in environment and sustainability, uh, it's hard, uh, but when you have a crisis, you can achieve something. And that happened on the water situation when we it stopped raining and, and we came up with the solution of uh, wind power desalination. We also had a lot of work done on consumption. So people in Perth now consume half of the water that they used to. So that's a, a major change, but it still would not have been enough we basically were not getting any water going into our dams. Uh, we had to have a d- different solution. We couldn't keep dragging down the water from the groundwater. Uh, so we have found a solution and that has communicated to a lot of other cities around the world. The climate change issue is another good story. A local person, Vanessa Allen, who's been very involved in the uh, uh, artistic side of things, helping Blue Room become much more uh, sustainable, she did a PhD with us and uh, was working on South Fremantle High School as an example of uh, how you could become carbon neutral. It was all about saving energy and water and making money from that in order to provide all kinds of things and put PVs on roofs and so on. And uh, that then went into 
a business she started called Climate Clever, which is enabling people to understand their own consumption. And that app, it's a very smart app, and uh, smart systems can be put to a very uh, productive and revolutionary use as well as being part of the problem. Um, and that that app is now going across the world and, and Australia uh, in not just schools, but also in businesses and homes to help people understand their their impact and to learn from it. And the learnings that are provided on the app are gathered together from all the different people who share their experience at saving that. And artificial intelligence is used to help manage that and and get the uh, solutions oriented more for the particular peoples and their problems. That's a good use of artificial mm. intelligence. And we have to find them. So I'm writing a book on smart cities and, te- and uh, sustainability. And, and it, when you just brand things and sell them and say, oh, it'll automatically help and all you're doing is creating more surveillance in the streets, um, that's clearly not right. We have to overcome that. If it's put to work to help solve the problems in sustainability, then we can perhaps reshape it. But that's our big issue at the moment. There's a whole lot of money has gone into smart systems and it is not solving those problems. Mm. It's pretending to, and it's not enough to brand it. Speaking of consumption and responsibility, it's a perfect segue into asking you a little bit more about the the Blue Room sustainability because I I was having a look at their policy, Renee, and it starts out by saying the Blue Room Theatre accepts it must work to preserve the sustainability of the planet. That is a big ask of a small arts organisation. A small arts organisation that became the first arts organisation in WA to be become carbon neutral in 2019. Uh, That policy, it's a living document. It's always going to be developed and revised and and alongside um, the commitment to the justice um, pledge that the the Blue Room Theatre has. And I think um, what's important to understand with that is that we felt at that time, um, probably back talking about from about 2014, moving forward to achieving that and still maintaining that status of carbon neutrality, um, that there were a lot of people who were really wanting to see leadership in the space. And of course, we're starting to see that across Australia. Um, and it, it was really important to be to be that leader in the that independent small to medium sector to actually say, we can do these things in a heritage building as well, very hard. Um, but to be able to say that there is behavioural change, Um, amongst um, staff and how we understand our relationship to the art sector and our audiences. But, you know, with solar power, with changing the lighting system to LED, to really making a commitment to a value system to actually say that sustainability is not only about um, being able to address our footprint, but also how we engage with communities and how we take everyone along on that ride. So it's also very important in terms of inclusivity, access and um, justice issues Mm. as well. So, Can I ask you further on that about your observations of the level of anguish that individual artists may experience trying to make their practice sustainable? Yeah, 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, we have a, we do have a great divide between the um, the independent, the small to medium, and the uh, in this. I'm talking very specifically about theatre and performance, but I think it is across art form um, between those who um, are subsidised and those who are constantly seeking the resources to order in order to make work. But with that comes um, the desire and the drive to actually try and live through those the ethics of what it is you put on stage and who you're working with, but also the materials that you're using. So how, what is waste when it comes to theatre waste and how what can be reused um, and um, how are we getting to our theatres? What are we doing um, in terms of transport and, you know, taking that sort of personal ethic and then actually also applying it to your artistic practice? I think that it's the, the it's, very much occurring in the intersections and the conversations around accessibility and inclusivity. That's also where this is really important. So not just about uh, climate crisis and ecological crisis, but all of these interconnections. Um, so I think artist wellbeing is massive, um, and artists are exhausted being the the, the message, the message, the messenger. But also it's. Um, it's a, uh, what is that, the, the blessed unrest, mm. and that's something that is a driver as well. So it's 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 a really important conversation, um, which I think the Chamber is really dedicated in, in understanding. Um, but that conversation between artists, the institutions, and the, the community and their audiences about how we can do better to support artists and the work that they're making. Aron, can I ask you a similar question then, your attitude to the responsibilities of artists to sustainable practice? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. You know, I was just I was just thinking about it because before COVID, I was a total environmental criminal. I would go to Europe five or six times a, week, a year and, and go to the States and, and Asia. So, so my environment, my carbon footprint is, is just horrendous. But what I realised as well is that this allowed me or, or forced me to, to think about things and, and talk about the issues in a way which is not self-righteous. And I think that's an extremely important thing to also acknowledge the fact that we can't sit on our laurels and, and, and be smug about being carbon neutral, for example. We, you know, it's always striving for more and, and, and we should never be seen as if we are taking the higher moral ground and looking down at our audience or at our partners or at the people that we work with. It's, it's have to be done in a different way. So, so again, it's this kind of mindset, mindset of, of humility and, and being humble about it and the realization that there's always issues and we can only strive for better, but we'll never reach kind of the optimum. Uh, but avoiding the, this, the, this self-righteousness, I think, is, is, is the first step. And this is the issue that I've seen, and especially now when I work in this uh, field of, of those uh, food systems and, and see how... Because it's the thing that bothers me most, it's not so much the art world, it's really how the uh, startup culture and the Silicon Valley mindset is, is taking over everything around us. And, and when it reaches our food systems, I'm re very concerned, you know, the same way that uh, Theranos and uh, Elizabeth Holmes were trying to mess up with our health uh, using this uh, fake it till you make it. Um, what, what does the Facebook of our food systems would look like? What kind of uh, world we're going to live in? Um, so I'm actually addressing them. They're the main target at the moment for me to try and, as an artist, to subvert and, and, and engage with them and to, to various degrees of success. 
But I think that, um, you know, and seeing at Symbiotica, because Symbiotica is a place of residences, so we had about 120 residents since we started, and, and there was many, many different approaches, but most of the artists came with some form of uh, environmental consciousness that realizing that in many cases it was shattered by the reality of the lab, because the way in which the lab is being promoted is that it is a magical place that doesn't take any resources, and then when you come, you actually realize it's mm. extremely resource-intensive. So, Aron, further to that then, uh, talk to me about your observations of those residents on, you know, how troubled they become witnessing, uh, you know, the situation in which they will have to work despite their ethical position. Um, Yeah, so many of them end up, basically, that becomes a feature of the work. So, the you know, when we had our very first show at PICA in 1998, one of the things we've done was to actually show all of the plastic work, uh, plastic work that was used in the process of making our work, uh, which we then sterilized and brought it into the gallery space. And, and there was like a small mountain in the back gallery to show the fact that it's not just about um, the idea of working with living biological systems as a sustainable practice because they are biological, but all of the other apparatus that is needed to do so. And, and we saw that with many of our residents, they, they would use similar approaches where they would highlight the realization. And that's the realization of, of the, the, the costs. And this is, I think, why places like Symbiotica are so important because they provide this very direct experiential engagement rather than this fantasy of what we're being told. And, and I think it's so important to embed artists in particular within all of those different situations where they have this direct experience without uh, any filters that are by you know that are usually being imposed by PR machinery or any other thing that uh, kind of uh, forces artists to, to to kind of look over a shoulder rather than be directly engaged. And when it comes to the ethics as well, this idea of the fact that obviously being part of a research university, all of the research projects have to be cleared by institutional health and safety and ethics, which forces the residents to start to think about what they're doing in ways which are very different than usually you think about as an artist because the, the ethics commissions in institutions are basically based on a cost-benefit analysis and how you measure the benefit of the arts uh, as opposed to the cost that they might be caused is something that you don't usually think about as an artist and that kind of forces you to start to think and try and, and that's where I'm pushing them to try to talk about the benefits of the art without the utilitarian value. So this whole discourse about kind of the uselessness as the power of arts is becoming more and more important, the idea of how artists can actually help transmit ideas which has a value uh, rather than talk about um, solving very specific problems in the world. And so, uh, and in most cases, you know, in most cases, the artists have to go through quite a few iterations of their ethics application, which becomes also a major part of the residency, uh, but really helps them think about the projects and, and being able to communicate it much better. Renee, would you like to comment on the ethics as well? Oh yeah, it's something that um, I need to take my students through all the time. It's also something that I do as a creative researcher in the academy. And so I think that that's something that's really interesting about taking it back out into into industry as well. And I, I remember taking um, a human research, uh, sorry, human um, research ethics committee application to PICA um, when I was working with them on a series of projects and, and and actually developing it alongside them to sort of say, like, how might I be an ethical artist in the industry taking these sort of, uh, the, these, um, 
this process and I find that it actually makes um, makes you a better communicator and makes you understand your work and um, and it really does make you ask those questions of the risks versus the benefits, like in a way that kind of reclaims that um, risk assessment mode of an institution and actually says, what am I trying to do? What am I trying to say? And how can I actually put that out into the world and, and understand it better? So it's a really, actually a really interesting process. If we think about the the sort of three pillars of this conversation being essentially about making work about climate and environment, about sustainable practice, and then I think the third unignorable pillar is ethical partnerships. I mean, I understand that, you know, an ethical partnership means different things to different arts organisations, but perhaps, Peter, I'll go to you first then. How vexatious is it to you to see organisations that are responsible for environmental and climate destruction having their branding on arts and cultural activities? Well, let me take a a bit of a perspective on ethics first, because I've had to do ethics applications recently, and I just find them a bureaucratic nightmare. They, they would it'd be great if I could sit down and have a contemplative process where we actually had existential awareness of what the issues were, but it's mostly become bureaucratic nonsense. And for me, so much of the environmental problems today are not due to the lack of cultural awareness. Gosh, we just look at the last election. Um, we, we have regulatory processes now designed to keep people at work without any concern for the issues that we're trying to solve. And they get in the way. And I can go through it time after time. We've got a new economy emerging with all of these new renewable technologies and lower consumption processes and, and the thing stopping it are the regulatory processes that are in place from years back. So that's the context I'd like to start with. But I closely am involved in the uh, issues to do with oil and gas in this state and have been for some time. I've not been a great supporter of the gas industry over the years. And I think that now it's clear we don't need gas in our houses or industries. We can change. Um, and the gas industry has to ch- start moving down that path much more rapidly instead of calling themselves a transition fuel, which they aren't. They are part of the problem, not part of the solution. And we have a very big gas industry in this state who have immersed themselves in every aspect of it. So the WA Scientist of the Year, which I was awarded a few years ago, Uh, the sponsorship came from oil and gas. And that is still the case. Uh, I have now suggested to the organisers and to the university vice-chancellors, we must find other sponsors. It cannot continue that oil and gas seem to be the basis of promoting science because they're denying science at the moment. And that is not acceptable. So us as scientists involved in these issues, we cannot be part of that. And I think that that is on the agenda for the arts, but it's certainly on the agenda for science and the environment across the board. Renee, can I ask you about your attitude to to ethical partnerships and the dilemma that this represents for artists? Um, Sure. It's uh, it's a really complex argument. Um, 
A lot of funding comes from these particular resources, um, resource-driven um, industries. I would say that it's, this is a conversation that's been happening for a long time. And I mean, most recently, a really interesting um, advancement, I suppose, comes you know, from PVI Collective, um, who shared their code of ethics template and um, and had ran a workshop um, on how to think about a value system for organisations. Um, but I think it's just a deeply complex conversation that just keeps on going, keeps on going. Aron, tell me about your attitude to the artist's responsibility to decide about ethical partnerships based on all of the other pressures already existing. When Semiotica started, we, we made a very uh, clear and conscious um, decision that we would refuse funding from what we refer to as interest groups. Because our work was really around uh, the fields of biotechnology and the life sciences, um, we never seeked and we never received money from industry, from the biotech industry. And, and I actually refused uh, funding from the people for ethical treatment of animals as well. So we said, like, either side of the debate shouldn't be funding the work that we're doing in Symbiotica in order to maintain at least a perception of uh, artistic autonomy and freedom to be able to engage with those issues without those biases that are always embedded in the way funding is being provided. We did, however, had residents that were funded by different interest groups, and that was obviously arm's length from us, but, um, and, and I could see how they were struggling. Um, when it comes to funding here in Western Australia, you know, Symbiotica was actually funded by the Lottery Commission. And this is a great initiative, but then it also makes you think about uh, issues around the distribution of wealth uh, through things like uh, gambling and, and lotteries and how and where that's. So all funding to the art seems to be tainted in one way or another, you know, and even getting taxpayers' money. It's like where, where the taxes are coming from. And everyone have to make their own decisions. But my sense is that the most important thing is is to allow artists to engage in the practice without having strings attached. And, and many of the philanthropists and their supporters for the arts here and elsewhere tend to be more and more forceful in the way they want artists to uh, play to their rule book rather than give them this freedom. So I think uh, my, my resistance is towards uh, uh, any st structure that uh, compromises artistic integrity, um, regardless where the money comes from. And finally then, let's discuss the future, even if it's just in, in the short-term future and what you can foresee. Renee, perhaps I'll go to you first and, and just ask you how you see this relationship between climate and environment and arts and culture developing in the short to medium term. Um, okay. I think it's interesting that I'm placed quite physically between these two chaps here and uh, and go back to the uh, Ben Ockrey Guardian piece, which was about this existential creativity, where it's very much about allowing the dystopian with the utopian, um, being able to actually say, we can't actually imagine future without confronting what is our current situation. And and that's a pretty damning situation. It's a pretty conflict-driven situation and one we have to address. So that is that existential creativity that... Um, that he's referring to is being able to kind of find a way to do both. And I see the arts being able to be part of that conversation, but not being the only one um, and artists being the only ones, being the drivers or the communicators or the, you know, the poets that are able to actually talk about the truth. Um, it's not our responsibility, it's everyone's. And so I think that the future very much has to sit in that 
interconnected balance, um, that relationship um, between the arts and civic society, institutions, the larger community, global, local, and by doing that, invariably, we will be addressing the environment. Peter, can I ask you to respond to the same question about your thoughts on this short to medium term future of this interface between arts and culture and climate and environment? The context is that the climate is going to get worse. We are right now in a situation where London is over 40 degrees and catching fire and the right through Europe, bushfires that were thought only to happen in places like Western Australia. We are going to have one crisis after the other. The reality of the climate change problems that were predicted and are now coming actually sooner than many people thought uh, is going to set a one, an amazing stage for this existential crisis we're talking about. It's no longer something that intellectuals are talking about and having to work through. This is daily issue for every person in the community. What is the future for my children going to be? And it's getting worse, but it's not necessarily getting worse forever. The, the story of the latest IPCC report I was in shows that it is already getting easier to absorb carbon into the soils uh, and, and the latest State of the Environment report shows that in the last 10 years, we absorbed something like 23 million tonnes more than we were depleting. And yet for 200 years, we were depleting our soils. So it's turned around and that's a global phenomenon. As we get rid of the fossil fuels, we'll need to continue that and drag the CO2 out of the atmosphere so that we actually have an opportunity to go back to 1.5 or less. And we can then stabilise the climate again. If we don't do that, the existential crises will reduce civilization to a, a crumb of what it is. But if we do this, we can ride through the next 20 to 30 years and show that there is a better future emerging. And the arts need to show us what that is, not just highlight the problems. We need the solutions and we need to see that we are actually doing amazing things out there that can bring this about. And we can lead in that in Australia. Aron, on the back of that optimism... That's great. Uh, hopefully people will do it. But then I would also say that there's a place for people who are pointing out where solutions are being proposed are actually the wrong solutions and are driven by the wrong mindset. So, you know, it's not excluding each other. But I think that if, if I, I'm in a really privileged position of actually having a lot of experience and spending a lot of time in labs and actually doing the work myself to understand when I'm being bullshitted and I have no other agenda. So I'm working in the field where I'm being credited as a pioneer in the field that I'm actually finding problematic, which gives me power and gives me some authority to question those solutionist approaches and pointing a finger that they're not really a solution, they're actually part of the problem. So I, I'm not saying that all artists should engage in the same way that I'm doing it. And I, and I totally, as I said, I admire this optimism and I think we, we do need more of it, but I think it has to be driven from realistic foresight rather than blind hope. And I think what art should do and what art does really well is challenging people into rethinking their position rather than telling them what is right or what is wrong. 
if we are becoming propagandists, we, we are becoming a totally different field of practice. And, and I think that art should maintain this challenging, ambiguous way of forcing people to challenge their own perceptions. And then it's up to the audience to actually make their choices rather than us spoon-feeding them with what we think is right. Thank all three of you so much for an incredible conversation. Peter Newman, Renee Newman are on Cats. You've been listening to a podcast from Seesaw Magazine, produced in partnership with the Chamber of Arts and Culture, Western Australia. The Chamber of Arts and Culture WA is a policy and advocacy body representing the arts and cultural sector in Western Australia. The Chamber believes that a vibrant and diverse arts and cultural scene is essential for economic, social and personal well-being. This podcast was made on Noongar Buja, mixed by Gemma King, with theme music by Josh Hogan and Ed Beckley of Envelope Audio and generously supported by a grant from Lottery West. For more arts news and stories, head to WA's award-winning arts magazine, seesawmag.com.au.